as I was reflecting on what to speak about tonight, I realized that um, about a third of you will be leaving on Friday, and so entering into a different form of practice. So wanting to find something that could be helpful for everybody. As a result, I came up with a fat book. (laughs) I'm not quite sure how this is going to work, but (laughs) I'll give it my best shot. What I'm going to speak about tonight is the paramis, or the ten perfections. Um, The paramis being generosity, virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And the list itself makes me happy. (laughs) Actually, I want to say before I go into it that um, in many ways it makes, really makes me happy. And yet I know sometimes we can hear talks about the Parmes, and it can bring up a lot. It can, you know, like, I'm no good, you know, these qualities seem so distant, remote. And I want to remind us that actually these qualities are strengthening all the time that we're practicing. That, you know, many times we're so focused on mindfulness, concentration, we fail to see the garden that is growing. And it's, you know, these qualities are like the backstage crew. And they're really, you know, helping support the mind. You know, one definition of them is requisites for enlightenment. They are qualities that support awakening. And they actually become the expression of the awakened mind. So notice if you start moving into judging mind as I'm speaking, because these qualities aren't personal. They aren't about you having to create them. They are about what comes forth as we practice. And they are what we can at times really consciously turn our attention to. You know, they're wholesome states of mind that we can learn to recognize We can see what helps to strengthen them. And we can see habits of confusion that we may have around them that whereby they diminish. And so, you know, it's like just really bringing into uh, the arena of our awareness these qualities that naturally come forth but also get strengthened through practice and really can become a you know just a, a real form of rejoicing in and i've seen this in really dark moments on retreat where you know it feels like hitting the head against the wall and it feels painful and so one of the things i've learned to do is to look in those moments and see if there's qualities of our you know, some of these qualities of the paramis that are being strengthened. And inevitably, patience, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's all, it's, uh, it gets a workout on retreat. <laughs> Resolve, 
You know, if we didn't have some sense of determination, of steadfastness, you know, we, we would have left on our very first retreat. You know, when we hit the hindrances, it would be like, well, why bother? You know, I didn't come here to suffer. Let's get out of here. But, you know, we have some sense of perspective. And we, you know, it's like really having a sense of what's involved in the journey and being able to stay steadfast on that. And, you know, sometimes on retreat, we really learn to be our own best friend. You know, we learn about loving kindness. And they aren't always lessons that come when things are nice, good, the way we like them. They come as we face challenges. And, you know, I have known that in my own practice when I've seen, you know, these places of difficulties and then just looking to see what of these paramis may be there, the heart gladdens, it lightens, confidence starts to come back, faith. And it's like that willingness to meet this. So it helps us to regain perspective. And for those of us who are leaving soon, you know, these are really kind of joyful aspects of our lives that we can pay attention to in daily life, to work with the strengthening of these qualities on a daily basis. You know, to look at how we can bring in generosity into our lives, how we can live a life of non-harming, how we can be truthful, how we can live our whole life from the perspective of strengthening this resolve to awaken So there, you know, it's really kind of a, a helpful framework, a helpful list. And it's not a list that actually appears in the Pali Canon as a list, although all of these qualities do uh, are mentioned uh, in different places. But I think these qualities are qualities that if we had met the Buddha, would be so evident in his behavior in his way of being. You know, we can hear it in the suttas when he gets asked so many difficult questions, strange questions. He gets people angry, and he's so patient, patient. He's so compassionate. You know, that, you know, he had the compassion to work with the most troubled beings, you know, mass murderers. He could work with. He had compassion and openness of heart. His loving kindness could stop animals, raging animals. Such was the strength of it. You know, living in the world that we do today, I've often thought, you know, if the Buddha was to appear, would we really acknowledge that? You know, that it's, it's sometimes so hard to really uh, have s- such sense of 
faith in the possibility of awakening that we could let our neighbor awaken. You know, that there's, there's something in the mind that says, mm, I don't know. And, you know, in, in our world today, there's many beings who can sound wise. My guess is that if we spent time with them, if their wisdom is fully embodied, this list of qualities that the, is the tar- paramis would be the expression of that wisdom. Would ha- you know? It's kind of like the way of differentiating between someone who can cleverly put together words and someone who deeply embodies wisdom. Our path to awakening needs to have a balance between wisdom and compassion. And this is very well put by Acharya Dhammapala, who in the 6th century gathered together the teachings on the paramis and pulled them together into a single treatise. He says, Through wisdom, the bodhisattva, or one aspiring to awakening, to Buddhahood, perfects within themselves the character of a Buddha. Through compassion, the ability to perform the work of a Buddha. Through wisdom, one brings oneself across the stream of becoming. Through compassion, one leads others across. Through compassion, one trembles with sympathy for all. But because compassion is accompanied by wisdom, one's heart is unattached. Actually, compassion doesn't actually appear in this list of the paramis because all of the paramis are accompanied by compassion, meaning that they are all cultivated for the welfare and benefit of all beings. So, beginning this list... Dana, generosity, the capacity to give, giving in a way that is not self-referencing. Through giving, we discover a joy of giving. We discover the capacity to really care for the welfare of others. It takes us into a real active expression of loving kindness. This willingness to give even that which is most dear to us, which is most beloved, out of a place of caring. It's really a way of acknowledging our interconnectedness with all life. It's a form of expressing gratitude. And through generosity, we also learn the wisdom of letting go, non-attachment.
dana or generosity, I can't tell you how much joy the practice of generosity has brought to my life. And, you know, it was to me a really unexpected peace. I came to practice to get liberated. What did it have to do with dana, generosity? That the link wasn't immediately seen. And then, you know, and in the Buddhist teachings, it's really given a lot of importance. You know, it was when lay people came to the Buddha, it would be the first teaching that he would give to them. I feel so fortunate in my own life that my teachers have really embodied this quality. And it's been evident. And it brought it into my life to see the richness of this. To really discover that joy of giving. Because, you know, in my own life I felt like I was born with a tightly clenched fist. And just didn't know about giving. Didn't know what the capacity of it was. How it really, you know, helps the mind to become more pliable, less fixated, And through highlighting this aspect in my life, the joy has just been immeasurable. Actually, the basis of these teachings coming to us here today, kind of like the glass platter on which they get delivered, is that of generosity. Because these teachings have been freely offered since the time of the Buddha. Going back to the Buddha. Uh, you know, I find this so inspiring to think about. You know, it brings up a lot of joy in the mind. The Buddha, even, even before he was awakened, there was a lay woman who came, and the Buddha was in a really emancipated state. And this woman offered the Buddha some rice gruel. Out of that offering, the Buddha had, or the Buddha-to-be, had enough energy to practice until full awakening. And then from there, his generosity passed on these teachings. And other people received the teachings, took it to heart, and then in turn offered the teachings again and again and again. And all of these beings have also been supported by others' generosity. You know, the offerings of the requisites, food, medicine, clothing, shelter. And out of that, they arrive here today the generosity of people practicing even here before us. You know, this place came into being through generosity, immense generosity. And it's our generosity that makes it possible for people to come in the future. It's a whole chain of generosity. Generosity. 
actually just um, sharing something from the Buddha about the power of generosity. Once the Buddha asked a woman named Vasaka, who was the chief female patron, as to what she saw as the advantages of her generosity. And she said that when she hears that a particular monk or nun has attained any of the fruits of recluseship, and if that monk or nun has visited the monastery that she supports, she would be certain that they had partaken of the offerings she constantly makes. Then she reflected that she has she reflects that she has contributed in some measure to their spiritual distinction, and great delight arises in her. Joy arises in the mind that is delighted, and when the mind is joyful, the body relaxes. And when the body relaxes, a sense of ease is experienced, which helps the mind to be concentrated. And that helps the development of the spiritual faculties, the spiritual powers, and the factors of enlightenment. And the Buddha, upon hearing this, said, Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. It really sets this foundation of joy, of ease. Making it possible for the mind to concentrate, to be happy, contented. In retreat, the offerings we make are slightly different because it's not a time where we're going to run around and give gifts to everybody. You know, that's not a part of the, um, what's useful as we're here. On retreat, we give each other the gift of silence, the gift of allowing people to be able to go through their process without our interfering or, you know, sometimes a misplaced sense of compassion where we're trying to help somebody be fixed or healed. We just allow them the space to go through their own process. Here we give the gift of living the precepts. Through this we bring the gift of a sense of safety to be able to do the work that we do here. We give the gift of our presence, our really having that willingness to enter into this moment, to allow the deepening understanding of freedom. It's said that the greatest gift is the gift of Dhamma. And this is what we commit our practice towards. Really offering our highest wisdom. Through acts of generosity, we really begin to tangibly feel what it's like to let go. You know, sometimes in our practice, letting go feels obscure. 
no, not a strong sense of what happens in letting go. And yet, as we offer a gift, there can be a real letting go that's tangibly present. It helps us to viscerally know non-attachment, which is essential in practice, in the deepening of wisdom. So dana, generosity, the first parami. The second parami is that of virtue. Sila, morality. It's the way in which we include on our journey everything that we do or say as a part of our spiritual practice really helps to remove the division between formal practice and daily life. That we learn to take care in our actions, our words, how we live our lives. We learn to live by way of non-harming that comes out of care and respect for ourselves and others. Just being here, living by the precepts, we really get a sense of the power of it because we don't lock doors here because there is a sense of safety. It's an interesting place to lose something or leave something. Uh, I had an experience some years ago over at the retreat center. And, you know, at one point I lost something or I left it in the staff dining room. A year later, I discovered where I had left it. You know, and it's just safe in this environment if it's not in a place that, you know, it's um, going to be, someone's going to trip over or whatever. You know, no, it's like nobody's going to take it. Uh, it's such a beautiful aspect to have. And, you know, some years ago also I was teaching um, during the, the teen retreat, you know, where young people come. And, you know, they're coming from different, as we all are, but from different circumstances in life. And sometimes the world is a scary place to be. I was so moved in a group discussion period where one of these teenagers said, I've never felt so safe. And, you know, we just feel here the power of that. And when we live by the precepts in the world, this is really an offering that we make, that it enables people around us to relax, to feel safe. You know, it becomes conducive to creating harmonious relationships, harmonious environment. And it helps us to really keep examining our lives, to see where our behavior may be unskillful, where it's, you know, rooted in greed, aversion, delusion. And then to see the joy of living in a way where it's rooted in non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. We discover the joy of the virtuous heart. 
You know, the heart that's radiant. Being on retreat, we have probably discovered what it's like when we do unwholesome things. You know, how we're sitting here and memories from the past come up. Things we did that we didn't feel good about haunt us. Replay in our minds. That's just a way we can learn. You know, if we can just let the pain of that be felt, but not move into guilt with it, not move into that lacerating mind state, but just to see how these actions caused suffering. And then let it be an inspiration to recommit to living a virtuous life, a life based on non-harming. It's really powerful. And if we can do that, it allows us to sit with the unwholesome fruits that may arise. But we learn from them and can move on and in an an inspired way because we have seen what happens when we don't have wise attention, when we're not careful, when we're not paying attention. When we work with virtue, we look at what's motivating our actions to really see if they're wholesome or unwholesome. So virtue, being that of living in a way that creates harmony, is based on non-harming, care, and respect. Why would we want to do otherwise? And how much joy comes when we reflect on what we've done in our lives that's been based in wisdom, that is wholesome, helpful. The next of the paranamis being that of renunciation. It's a quality of mind and heart that when cultivated, inclines the mind towards liberation through helping us to relinquish or let go of that which is not serving us. And when it's fully realized, it's an expression of the awakened mind where there is the capacity to simply let go knowing that nothing whatsoever can be clung to and living in a way that reflects this. Renunciation can be one of these qualities that at first the joy in doesn't seem immediately apparent. That, uh, you know, I know for myself, I held it in a very 
rigid way, and you know, uh, it had within it the voice of should. You know, I should practice sense restraint. It's what's good for me. It's what's useful. And there was a lot of rigidity around it. But as our practice deepens, we begin to see that really what's being relinquished is our suffering. That's what we're letting go of. And then it becomes very joyful. You know, when we can think of um, renunciation as a renunciation of the hindrances, of indulging in desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt. You know, that does take on a more joyful connotation. There's different levels to renunciation. You know, there's renunciation in the outer world, which we've all practiced in coming here. You know, we've let go of outer conditions that where we had more control, you know, we had control over the food we ate. We had control over the temperature. We have uh, control over our environment. And we come here and we re- let go of that. We let go of a layer of activity where, you know, there's no TV, there's no radio, there, there's not the usual outlets for um, just occupying the mind. Uh, and, you know, usually on retreat we can't go shopping. So, <laughs> except if there's a Dharma closet around, <laughs> can often find ways. <laughs> but really, we're in an environment that supports a, a level of renunciation. So we're, you know, we kind of get quite familiar with that. But one aspect of really recognizing it is to just see how supportive that is. You know, people all the time talk about coming to the forced refuge and how conducive it is. Well, this outer level of renunciation is really an aspect of that that allows us to unify all of this energy that we have for awakening and really put it on the plate. You know, when we're not just chasing after sensual pleasure, not moving for the next hit, the next fulfillment. So we really begin to see the benefit of that in being here. And that's something we can apply in our lives. Surprise, surprise. You know, we forget. You know, we go home. And, you know, often going home at the, after a retreat is a really interesting experience. Because it's your home is surrounded by all your things, you know, and each thing can represent some form of attachment. And then not to get hard on yourself, but it's just let it look and see when you go home, you know, what some of it may be really useful, useful things. Some of the things around us, you know, nostalgic. Um, some of the things are there to fill empty spaces, you know, because we're afraid of that. Some of the things we probably don't even know why they're there. And, you know, that we just tend to fill our lives with clutter. Renunciation, and letting go. We're really working with what's really needed in our lives.
There's an inner level of renunciation where we learn to let go of anger. We learn to let go of desire. We learn to let go of our favorite fantasy. We learn to let go of calmness, tranquility, all forms of renunciation. And the deepest level of renunciation is the letting go of this view of self, the small self that stands separate. On retreat, we begin to see the pain of the attachment to these sense pleasures and the rewards of renunciation. In one of the suttas, the Buddha referred to renunciation as rest. And, you know, when I first heard of renunciation, that wasn't how I thought about it. But I've really come to appreciate it. You know, the mind is at rest. It's not grasping. It's not pushing away. It's letting go. Letting be. Suzuki Roshi, well-known Zen master, once said, Renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but the accepting that they go away. Looking in our lives to how we can work with both outer, inner, and the innermost level of renunciation. The next of the paramis being that of wisdom. We work really directly with this parami in insight meditation, seeing things as they are. This is the greatest wisdom. And this parami really helps all of the other paramis to be true, to be perfected, because without wisdom, we would not know what true generosity is. We would not know what virtue is. That there's, otherwise, there's confusion around it, uncertainty. We would not know renunciation. In our practice, we work with wisdom through mindfulness of the four foundations. Very simple. Really just being with our experience as it is. I didn't want to really go too much into wisdom tonight because it's really what we talk about so much. But I did come across something that I I was kind of humored by and found helpful just to, you know, to see what comes up in the mind as you hear this list. It's a, a list from the commentaries of factors that hinder wisdom and promote delusion. These are ten factors. Um, the first is that of idleness. So I'm just I'm not going to go into a commentary on each. You can just kind of look in your own mind as you hear these. Idleness, 
finding delight in company, a fondness of sleep, an indecisive nature, a lack of desire for knowledge, the wrong opinion of oneself, a lack of inquiry, the non-use of concentration, association with the unwise, and the lack of association with the wise. That could be helpful to remember in those moments of idleness, (laughs) lack of desire for knowledge, (laughs) lack of inquiry, (laughs) fondness for sleep. I know I've had to look a lot at that one in my own life. (laughs) As a parami, we really cultivate wisdom to be for the benefit of all beings. You know, to really, it's like using this life wisely to know what the full capacity of being a human being is and to offer this, to see the truth, to know the truth and to help others to do the same. The next of the paramis being that of energy, effort, a vital source in our lives. In worldly life, we need energy to do things. In our practice, we need energy to wake up out of delusion, to, to learn to just pay attention without being propelled by these habits. Effort or energy is something that many of us struggle with. Now that it seems so challenging to find. I think I spoke about this in the beginning of the month in some more detail. But it's, you know, finding that courageousness of heart to meet this moment as it is, regardless of whether the experience is pleasant or unpleasant. To meet this moment, even though at times the energy may be low, the mind is dull, that there's complacency, finding a level of effort or energy that can rally to that meeting or the amount of effort or energy that's needed when the mind is like a wild horse you know that there's an abundance of energy but it's all over the place it requires a sensitivity 
because energy conditions are always changing. It requires you know, just a responsiveness to conditions to see how much energy or effort is needed. And that, that sensitivity brings us really intimate with experience because we can't do it from habit. Wise effort is the wholesome energy directed towards liberation that needs to be guided by wise view and wise intention. A view that is not tainted by self. A view that is not towards making self bigger, better, more vibrant, but is towards deepening understanding. The intention needing to be based on non-greed, hatred, and delusion. Energy is really the heroic heart, the heart that is willing to face all of these different conditions, even when it's difficult. The next of the paramis being that of patience. The Pali word is kanti, often translated as patience or forbearance. But in Pali, the word actually has overtones of love, compassion, tolerance, acceptance, gentleness, even the suggestion of humility. Patience in itself is like a soothing balm. Jogim Trungpa Rinpoche once likened it to grace. And we get a sense of that in practice. We often come on to retreat with expectations. Many times those expectations are not seen. We think we're okay. You know, we'll come, whatever happens, that's cool, that's okay. But inevitably we come and these expectations get revealed. Sometimes at the forced refuge we do get a little bit of a honeymoon period because we come and the conditions here are so pleasant um, that you know, it might not be immediately evident. But at some point we're up against the expectations and a lot of frustration can arise. A lot of impatience as over and over again we're met with the same habituated mind states, patterns. You know, we just can't believe it's coming again and again and again. Or you know, moments where greed arises and it is so strong. If we're really present in those moments, we learn patience. 
we learn humility. I, I remember clearly times, and you know, particularly around food, where you know, just getting caught in the wanting, really, you know, there's the force of the wanting coming up, and then just seeing that the strength of that was awe-inspiring, and you know, it just helped me see how strong, how deep the habits of greed, hatred, and delusion are, and that you know. It was going to take patience to work with. In early on in my practice, I remember a retreat of sitting and really thinking that if I noted anger and it disappeared, it would never return. You know, and we just see those roots go deep, and we learn humility. How you know the, how to be humble, and yet not to give up. I particularly learned this at one time when I was really struggling. I had gone to Burma. I had temporarily ordained as a nun. Uh, I was living in a nunnery in Sagain Hills. It was a deeply challenging time. Ordaining had been wonderful. Felt an alignment of my heart, uh, you know, on the inner level and in the outer world. And really a sense of grace in ordaining. And then... Uh, you know, very soon after that, life became very challenging. And um, I'm not going to go into all of the difficulties here, but I just, at, at that time, came across a, a quote, which unfortunately I don't know who said it, where I read it, but it really stuck in my mind, and it, it helped so much because there was so much struggle. I said, it said, it is, until we are fully liberated and see clearly without obscurations, there will be times when the mind is covered by delusion. Now, it's pretty obvious, but it, it was like, oh yeah, there is going to be times when the mind is simply covered by delusion. That's what happens until you're fully awake. And so it just kind of was like, ah, it brought more acceptance. You know, this is just what happens on this journey. It's okay. More patience. And out of that, there is forbearance. There is the capacity to stay with. Patience really takes us to a radical acceptance. It's, you know, when you think of all the times in your life when you've been impatient, you've wanted things to be a certain way, you've wanted certain conditions, you've not wanted what's happening. And that in those moments, you could be at peace. It's radical. It's really a radical shift. And patience really manifests as tolerance, which enables us both in practice to open up to difficult experience, in our lives to open up to difficult experience, difficult peoples. It just opens up our world. 
when patience is there. And we can't learn patience when everything is going the way we want it to. It doesn't happen that way. And so, when there is difficulties, challenges, this is when we learn patience. The next of the paramis being that of truthfulness. And there's a story about Gandhi, which I find very inspiring. He was once going to get on a train, and it was a very busy situation. And there was a reporter who wanted to get some pearl of wisdom from him. Excuse me. He said to Gandhi, Please give me a message for the people. And Gandhi responded by saying, My life is my message. That's powerful. I remember first time I heard that story was sitting in this hall. And it was like, mm. how I reflected how you could only really say that if your life was based in truthfulness. If there was that degree of integrity that we let our lives be our message. Our practice really helps us with this parami because we are developing honesty, truthfulness in just being with our experience as it is, being honest when anger is present, when fear is present, when the judging mind is present. You know, really being able to call a spade a spade. And yet, I don't know about you, but I've seen in the privacy of my own cushion, this can still be a challenge. You know, when nobody else need know, it can be hard to see some aspects that might not seem so beautiful, you know, that we don't want, that, you know, we don't like, don't want, and find it difficult to be honest. But it's really kind of a good place to begin with honesty, being as upright in your practice as you can. Dishonesty in our lives creates a sense of uneasiness, of not being safe. And when we bring in this quality of honesty, it really helps to dispel delusion. On retreat, we can practice honesty in our interviews. 
You know, we don't have so many forms of speech here, but that is one form of speech. And just to notice where we might be trying to bolster ourselves up by, you know, just giving a little bit more emphasis to things, um, bringing in a little bit more drama, or, you know, just what what's happening as we speak. Does it clearly reflect what our experience is? learning to be honest in our speech. We can speak that which is timely, true, gentle, purposeful, and spoken with a mind of loving kindness. Looking at truthfulness in our lives, letting it be based in truthfulness so that we aren't feeding Habits of delusion. Honesty on the relative level in our lives is truth reflected in word, thought, and deed. And on the absolute level of seeing things just as they are. As a parami, we can make a pledge to help others without being deceitful. This is from Sagyo, a 12th century Buddhist monk. He said, The mind for truth begins like a stream, shallow at first, but then adds more and more depth while gaining greater clarity. At first, it may not be so easy to have this strength of truthfulness, but it gains momentum, making the decision to be truthful. The next of the paramis is that of resolve. This is what really keeps us going on retreat, really helps us to stay steady, persevering. It's a quality that helps us to remember why we are doing what we are doing. Even though we get challenged, it helps us to keep realigning with our deepest vows in life. The journey itself can be unknown, scary, fearful. And without this quality of resolve, we might turn our backs. We might deliberately get caught or lost in distraction or indulge in sense pleasure. But this quality of resolve keeps our feet to the fire. It's certainly a quality that Uh, for me, has come forth on retreat, and usually on difficult retreats, where, you know, I remember um, the first retreat that I did with Sayada Upandita. I found myself deeply challenged, not wanting, uh, you know, in the very first Dharma talk, 
just the sense of get me out of here. <laughs> it was, you know, I actually thought what he was saying was not meditation. It was hitting upon beliefs that I had about meditation. And uh, really through my first interview with him, he was able to open it up into a way that I could be there to really treat the practice as a scientific experiment. And, you know, I felt at ease with that. But it was a, a, a month-long retreat, and every day I thought about going. Every day I wondered what I was doing. But what I noticed that there was this being that as soon as the wake-up bell went, and that was you know probably 3.30 in the morning, i get out of bed. I'd be in the hall. Usually I was in there before anyone else or before many people were there. I sat late into the night. And it was... It was kind of interesting because, you know, it wasn't because it was a nice experience. It wasn't because the practice was easy, flowing. But it was because there was a real interest in what it takes to wake up. There was a real interest in in looking where. Um, I think I called that retreat something about open brain surgery, you know, where I was just investigating beliefs that were constricting. And I just saw that there was this, you know, and it wasn't me. You know, I could really see it wasn't me. If it was up to me, I'd be out of there. You know, but there was something, some resolve, some deep vow inside that wanted to know freedom. And it kept me going. And it's kept me going through so many retreats where, you know, you just, think why but it's like it can hold what's happening within the context it remembers why we're with pain in a sense you know it it remembers we're not there to suffer more but to to bring understanding this quality of resolve will help you to be present as I go over in an hour. (laughs) It really manifests as a tenacity. And it's strengthened by clarifying our motivation. they're, They're connected in some way. And it really helps us to just keep going. The next of the paramis is that of loving kindness, friendliness, benevolence, gentleness, non-aversion, love with no attachment, sometimes seemingly impossible. having a friendly relationship to. You know, the, there's the loving kindness as is, you know, we do in Brahma Vihara practice, this great benevolence of heart that cares for the welfare of others. <clears throat> a 
it's also the kind attention, the quality of acceptance in attention. There's really simple moments of metta, loving kindness in our practice, where there's anger and there's a softening, accepting, where there's pain, body pain, and there's a softening, where the mind wanders, and there's just a gentle recognition and coming back. There's moments of metta when we're fully present to another. It's a way of, you know, just a simple expression of metta, where our world can include them and their well-being. As we practice, we learn, we really learn how to be our own best friend. I had one retreat again, which was very difficult, got into some very erratic terrain, um, sometimes, you know, almost to the brink of complete overwhelm. And, you know, there was not a moment where it felt like mindfulness could be put down. And it required, you know, I've had this sense of being on this little sailboat in the midst of the ocean and having this huge storm. And it was, you know, just a sense of it taking everything in me to keep going, to be skillful, to be, you know, just that, that complete dedication of heart in each moment. And then the seas got calm, more tranquil. And the thought that came into my mind is, wow, you're a good friend to have. You know, it's like we don't turn our backs on ourselves when the going gets tough. This is loving kindness. There's that caring. So metta, loving-kindness, friendliness, just in the way we approach our practice, it can be present. Our practice can be imbued with this friendliness, sense of inclusion. The last of the paramis. the pillar, the strength, that of equanimity. The mind that is stable, that is not tossed about on the great waves of life. The mind that is so vast, so spacious, it can hold everything. Now, sometimes we think of balance as being this really fine point. 
Well, when the balance is through equanimity, it's limitless. It holds the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. There's really simple ways, again, just to, I hope you get some sense of how these um, qualities really come forth in very simple ways through doing the work that we're doing here. It gets strengthened through learning to be with all experiences. You know, it's not, it's like whatever experience is there, this sets the stage for equanimity not having a preference, being able to be with each experience, not giving weight to one experience over another. In our practice, not giving priority to one activity over another paying attention, sitting, walking, brushing our teeth, having a shower, making a bed, eating. It's another way of, you know, just setting the ground for this impartiality, this evenness with all experiences. We can't fake equanimity. You know, there's, we try. <laughs> I have tried, I'll say. Um, and it can't be faked. It really comes from wisdom, from really seeing deeply that there is nothing to hang on to, nothing worth grasping at. It's rooted in insight. There's also the Brahma Vihara of equanimity. Which really allows us to open our hearts to all beings, whether they are dear to us or unknown to us, to not be caught in distinctions. It also helps us to accept others as they are, to let them live their lives as they need to, whether or not we approve or disapprove, but find that we can still hold them in our hearts. Because equanimity has within it this unconditional aspect. I warned you it was a book. (laughs) We're getting close, though.
So all of these paramis work together. And, you know, they support each other. And, you know, it's just sometimes one aspect is more distinctive. But here is just an example. In a moment of generosity, we're also practicing virtue through acts of non-harming. Renunciation through letting go of what's offered. Um, Practicing effort to actually carry through on our intention to give. And through wisdom, we know that in the gift, in the giving, and in the receiver, that they are all impermanent, empty. In an act of giving, loving kindness is present through caring for the welfare of others. And equanimity allows us to give without wanting anything in return. In doing something as simple as going through the food line, we can be working with a number of the paramis, arriving in the lunch line at the same time as someone else. We give way to them. It's a practice of generosity. As we go through the lunch line, renunciation in accepting what is given, what is given, and relinquishing our preferences. If there's reactivity in the mind, we work with the reactivity through mindfulness, which helps to cultivate equanimity and wisdom. And we keep applying mindfulness to the changing experience through the application of energy. If the person in front of us is moving very slowly or if we have to wait as someone cuts a banana or an orange, we practice patience. And our resolve keeps us holding this all within the context of liberation. So there's very simple ways these paramis are being strengthened. When we pay attention these forces become strengthened. They can become the default of the mind rather than greed, hatred, and delusion. These paramis, as they strengthen, become expressions of wisdom. So they're strengthened as we practice here and they're qualities that we can work with in our daily lives. So let's just sit for a moment. 